CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarosky Show as I speak. It's Friday, April 15th, 2022, otherwise known as Harold Washington Day in the city of Chicago. If you were alive, the greatest mayor the city of Chicago ever had would be 100 years old. Uh, and um, But I'm going to cite another headline to tell you what's going on in the world other than Harold's 100th year anniversary. Uh, and that is in the New York Times, after toying with Twitter, Musk now wants it all. I think I'm going to ask my distinguished guests what he thinks about that. I didn't even tell him in the pre-recording, you know, when we got together and discussed uh, what we we're going to talk about, we, I would throw that at him. I love throwing curveballs at my guests uh, without preparation. But I think my guest will have something uh, to say about uh, Elon Musk, if he does get a hold of Twitter, and it's a long shot, ladies and gentlemen, hasn't put up any money to take it. It's an interesting, it's a new way of buying a company. You just announce you're going to buy it, but you don't show the money that you have to actually acquire it. So it could just be, you know, a little trash talking and a way to promote his name and et cetera and so forth. But uh, what would the political ramifications of Elon Musk owning only Twitter B. So without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself and then we're going to get down to business. Take it away, distinguished guest. Well, thanks, Ben. It's great to be back. I'm David Ferris. I'm an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University, contributing writer at The Week and author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. Um, pour one out for The Week, by the way. They are shuttering their opinion section. So we're going to have to uh, find, uh, you know, find another way for me to get my outrageous opinions into the world. But I'm working <laughs> on it. Yeah. All right. New home for his outrageous opinions. I don't think they're that outrageous. I think uh, his book about the Democratic strategy uh, should be required reading for all Democratic candidates, political strategists, uh, and anybody who believes uh, in uh, dem what the Democratic agenda is supposed to be. So uh, I don't think you're outrageous at all. I think you're making a very compelling point. You know that because we've been having these conversations for five years. All right, uh, just one last thing before we get started. Uh, David wasn't with us a couple of weeks ago. He missed a couple of my listeners. like, hey, where's Ferris? <laughs> <laughs> where's that lefty guy uh, that you bring on from Roosevelt, the political scientist, you know, with the extremist views? So you were <laughs> ill. Just talk about it. You had some kind of flu or something. Uh, it wasn't oh, COVID. 
believe me, yeah, no, it wasn't COVID. I mean, I took three rapid tests um, and they all came up negative, but you would not have wanted to be me that week. I had, uh, pretty sure I had something called the norovirus, which is uh, just a stomach flu that, uh, you know, the details of which are best left to, to, to your imagination. But, uh, you know, suffice to say, I, you know, I won't have to diet for a while, you know, so um, it was, it was, it was horrible. I missed a whole week of class. Uh, I was just, just flat on my back for days and days and days. So, um, but I'm fine. I'm better. You know, just uh, no, I don't have long norovirus or anything like we're good, you know, so we're ready to roll. Uh, and ready to roll. You look, you look hell and hearty, as they say. Uh, I'm looking oh, at it virtually. Uh, and so you look in good shape. So I'm glad you're with us to talk politics. All right. Let's uh, start with Elon Musk. Even though I didn't even say we we're going to talk about that. I saw the headline. I go, oh, my God, I got to ask David Ferris about this. I know you have opinions on this. Elon Musk uh, is already talking about changing Twitter which I read as bringing Trump back uh, to Twitter and using uh, Twitter as a vehicle to elect Republicans so that he has people who will lower the tax rate. I presume that's the, the number one thing he wants to accomplish uh, with by delving into politics. But your thoughts on this, David Ferris? I, this is so fascinating to me because he, so he made, a, I believe, a $43 billion offer to buy Twitter, um, which is which is incomprehensible because Twitter is worthless. Um, it doesn't make any money. Um, it's not a good investment, um, and everyone hates it. It's like it's like offering forty three billion dollars to buy herpes or something. You know, it's it's just insane. Um, and, and Elon Musk is just it's like a terrible person, um, just like a just a rich, you know, completely disconnected from the concerns of everyday people. Um, who, who, you know, one of these, like, I'm going to launch myself into space, or I don't know what is the obsession with these people and going to space. Um, but he's a liberal, like the fundamental thing is he's a, he's a libertarian, right? Um, and so the big, the big change you could see that Musk might want to make to Twitter is like to stop all of this, like, you know, the content warnings and whatever, banning people for saying the wrong thing. Um, I could see him not liking any of that and, and, and wanting to change it. In terms of making Twitter more right-wing, I mean, I don't know. I feel like that work is already being done for them. Um, and the, the big change you could make would be to let Trump back on it, um, which, you know, might, might happen anyway, to be honest, if he becomes a presidential candidate. I don't really know. Um, but I do know is, I mean, anything that would allow us to think less about Twitter and think less in Twitter would probably be a good thing. You know what I mean? Uh, well, when I think about Twitter... Uh, and the impact it has on politics, I, of course, think Trump uh, and the fact that he's been uh, what, banned from Twitter, he's off of Twitter. So what's your sense of how that has impacted politics, the fact that Donald Trump is not using Twitter as uh, his bully pulpit, if you will? I mean, the, I, to me, the only meaningful change is that Twitter is like slightly less toxic on a day-to-day -day basis because people are not spending half of their time tweeting Trump's outrageous tweets into other people's timelines. You know, I, I, there was a point during his presidency in which I muted the name Trump. You know, I was like, I don't, people were always retweeting and screenshotting whatever nonsense he was, he was talking about at the time. Um, and so not having to deal with that is great, but unfortunately there are enough other horrible human beings on Twitter <laughs> that they just kind of, they just kind of fill that space up, you know, it's like uh, okay, it's not Trump, but it's uh, but it's like Ben Shapiro. It's it's not Trump, but it's uh, you know, um, said a horrible person that writes for re reason. Matt Walsh, or, you know, there's just there's a series of like extremely toxic white men on on Twitter. Not not just, that, but but like they are the most visible um, embodiments of everything that's wrong with the United States, and they they are still so prominent, and then you know, they they do this like outrage 
uh, porn, you know, where they're just like, I think a lot of what they do is they say the most deranged things and then, and everybody like hate tweets it, you know, on the left, they're like, oh, it's horrible. Look at this horrible person. Um, and I, you know, I do some of it like, uh, Andrew Yang got himself in trouble the other day. I don't know if you saw this. Um, Andrew Yang is just a, a living walking embodiment of the democratic party's need to do quality control in the primaries. Um, and not just like any, let anyone with a pulse pulling 1% onto the stage. It's so ridiculous. He said, uh, you know, he started this third party, the forward party or something like that, right? Vote forward. I don't know. Um, and he said, he was just making this tweet about bipartisanship. And he's like, hey, everybody, you know, once upon a time, a Republican president named Abraham Lincoln appointed a Democrat as his running mate in 1864. And everybody, every political scientist on Twitter had a stroke, like simultaneously. And we were like, <laughs> what happened next, Andrew? What happened next with Andrew Johnson? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Good Lord. So, yeah, it's the Twitter is, I, I don't like Twitter. I mean, I'm on Twitter to share my articles and and to build a little bit of a, a brand, I guess. But, um, but I, if I could, if I could not be on it, I would be happier. You know what I mean? Yeah. Andrew Yang, by the way, does remind me there's the, some similarities, uh, with the, uh, aforementioned Musk mm-hmm. and, and, and I actually do want to get your thoughts on this. I don't think we've ever had this conversation. I've had this conversation, uh, with, uh, many other guests, uh, of the lefty persuasion. So, what is it about the attractiveness to Americans about rich people? And Andrew Yang isn't as rich, obviously, as Elon Musk, who's if either the first or second richest man in the world. But it's it's the same thing. It's as though people who are successful in business, who have wealth, uh, who don't have to worry about the basic day-to-day needs that the rest of us have to worry about. Uh, like if their kid's home uh, because the daycare's uh, close for the day for Good Friday. They don't have to worry about who's going to take care of them, whether there's going to be someone at home. You know, it's just the basic elementary one-on-one needs that most everybody who's middle class and below deals with on a daily basis. And Americans have this infatuation with people who have no connection really to the realities of their life. And I, this, I find this interesting. Trump, people love him because he's rich. Here in Illinois, Ken Griffin is financing the Republican Party. People worship him because he's rich. What is it, in your humble opinion, David, that attracts Americans to men of wealth? I mean, I think it's it's partly aspirational in the way that everybody in the United States, I think, believes that they could get rich um, if they put their minds to it and that the people who are rich are the ones who are the smartest and the most successful and the most savvy um, rather than um, what Trump is, which is somebody that inherited a bunch of money from his dad and then mostly blew it um, until he got onto The Apprentice. So um, I, so I think that there's that. I think that there's, um, there's a culture of worship and fascination with the wealthy. Um, just, just going back to when I was a kid, you know, uh, lifestyles of the rich and famous, um, silver spoons, you know, um, different strokes. So many TV shows, especially in the eighties were, were about rich, you know, upper middle-class or, or rich families. Um, and, you know, continuing into the present day, there's billions, there's succession, there's, there's this whole, um, I mean, some of these shows are critiques, right. But like, I'm, I'm not sure that they're always read as critiques by the audience. Um, and so there's, a the, in the chasm, between the way that somebody like uh, like Rupert Murdoch lives and, and and the lived experience of everyday people, it's not just that they're like disconnected from our concerns, it's that they live in like a parallel universe um, where that caters to the ultra wealthy. 
Um, you know, they see concierge doctors who who only have rich patients. You know, they have they they ride on private jets. Um, they they don't interact with the public. They're 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 sheltered from them. Um, and I think some people are like, wow, that sounds great. <laughs> you know, like, boy, it would be awesome to never have to worry about money again. Um, this person must have done something right, and so I'm I'll vote for them. You know, they're they're, they're rich and they're smart. Uh, and I think that just really, you know, of course there are some people who, who are born into, into no wealth at all and they, and they make it, they make it big and, you know, God bless them. Um, but I, I think that the, our lack of any limitation on wealth building and wealth transfer, you know, intergenerational wealth transfer, it's like, you know, the ability that the, the fact that somebody like Jeff Bezos can be worth, I don't know, what is he worth? Like $50 billion or something more than that? A trillion? <laughs> like, I don't even know anymore. The fact that one person is allowed to accumulate that much wealth is is a legal choice that we have made that that we could change if we wanted to, right? And so what these guys are is they are really, you know, they are embodiments of a particular economic regime that we all participate in and that we keep perpetuating. Um, and so of course people love them. They love them because that's that's who we are. That's the system that we operate, right? The system that we operate allows people to get limitlessly wealthy and to transfer almost all of that wealth to their children, who then carry it on. You know, and they all go to Eaton and Harvard and um, and then we talk about Supreme Court justices and we talk about their qualifications as having gone to an Ivy League law school. So, yeah. Wow. What a riff. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'll just say this uh, as a lefty. People who advocate, uh, quote unquote, taking taxing the rich don't get on mainstream TV at all. They don't, when you were rattling off uh, all those TV shows and bombard you with propaganda about the rich, I'm thinking the only tax the rich candidate who broke through was Bernie Sanders. And his moment in the sun was very short. Uh, he, he gets routinely mocked and maligned uh, as because as, he's crazy Bernie, which is the message that Trump puts out about him, which... I believe that um, has caught on uh, with a lot of reporters and mainstream journalists. And he's the only one who broke through. I can't think of any other politician. You could argue for Elizabeth Warren um, who broke through, David. In, in terms, and I, I'm like, when we had a, a referendum on taxing millionaires in Illinois back eight years ago, to, this was what they gave us instead of raising the, the top rate. This, this is before you moved to the state. And they ducked, the Democrats ducked on uh, raising the top rate. Uh, and so instead they get, let us have a non-binding referendum on taxing the rich at a higher rate. It, <laughs> it passed. It was like, people liked it, you know? Uh, and then of course the Democrats ran away from it as an issue uh, until this horrific fair tax uh, campaign, which we won't go into again. So, I can't see any Democrats right now using this uh, as a campaign tool right now. Uh, do you think it would be successful if they were to raise these issues about inequities and raising more money from wealthy people? I mean, this is a, it's just such an obvious political winner. I mean, you look at polls. I mean, I know I just talked about how we all worship wealthy people, right? But like, we, there's also a, there's also a strong current in our politics of, um, uh, the sense that people are getting wealthy at our expense, right? And so that like people should pay their fair share, right? Like millionaires and billionaires should pay their fair share. Um, 
And I don't know who was responsible for coming up with this phrase. I think it was AOC um, or one of AOC's staffers or something, but, it, but the phrase was every billionaire is a policy failure um, as, as a way of communicating the, the fact that like this, this small but extremely influential class of billionaires, the, that the fact that they exist is a, is a choice that we have all made collectively that we could change with policy, right? Not, not that we're going to march them off to the gulag, right? <laughs> but we're just going to raise their taxes. We're going to tax their wealth. Um, something that we really don't do in this country. Right? Like, um, it's not all about the tax rates. It's about capital gains. It's about inheritance. Um, and uh, the Republicans re- repealed the inheritance tax. Man, I mean, it's just cr- like crazy stuff. And the inheritance tax is popular. And Republicans so clever, they repackaged it as the death tax. <laughs> you know? um, so again, we're just like terrible, this kind of messaging. So um, yeah, I think it's a winner. Um, I, I think that you've seen Biden pivot a little bit to attacking corporate greed and corporate profiteering. Um, it doesn't do it enough, and he's not really coherent enough, often enough to, to to press that successfully. But I think it's a baton that the rest of the party could pick up a little bit, talk about profiteering and record corporate profits. You know, Warren and, and Sanders have been doing this for months, and everybody laughed at them. They're like, "It's not the, you know, it's not they're not gouging us." And I'm like, "Yes, yeah, obviously they are." <laughs> <laughs> so have you been to the, have you been to a gas station lately? Uh, they're they're gouging us, right? Um, and so there's a lot of anger about that, and that anger could be directed at the Democrats or the Democrats could try to redirect it um, at the people that are actually responsible for it. And I, I think that there's nothing, I think there's nothing but political upside there um, in terms of, you don't, you don't have to say that wealthy people are horrible human beings or anything. Um, but, but you can say, look, we're all suffering. Inflation is up. Um, uh, you know, the energy prices, gas, it's not just gas prices, it's like heating your home. And we've talked about this before, right? Like, the, like there are some things that are not great about the American economy right now. Um, and, and Democrats need to be much more comfortable, um, identifying boogeymen to blame it on. Yes. And let's talk about that, uh, because that gets into, uh, some of the themes that you raised in your latest, uh, essay, uh, looking at the upcoming elections, uh, anger, there's anger in the voting populace. It could either be directed at the Democrats or it could be directed at the Republicans. My read of mainstream America. And that by that, I mean the mainstream newspapers uh, and uh, listening to the media outlets is that the anger is being directed uh, at the Democrats. The Republicans have once again outfoxed the Democrats and grabbed <laughs> the megaphones uh, and are blasting away. And Democrats are on the defensive from one state to the next, on one issue to the next, uh, as they run away from the principles that they supposedly believe in. Uh, maybe I'm being too dire, gloomy, and pessimistic. Uh, what's your view of this? I totally agree with you. Um, and I think going back a few years, there's there's always this like massive overcorrection from the last election. So if you remember after 2016, um, when you know we had a very close primary, bitter primary between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, and uh, when that primary ended, like Bernie was leading Trump in the in polling by more than Clinton was. And so um, when she lost the election narrowly, everybody thought, okay, so the so the answer here is to run like very far to the left. <laughs> right. Um, and I think some of that came out in the 2020 primary, Democratic presidential primaries. Uh, if you if you remember this this time in our lives before COVID, <laughs> summer 2019, when the when you know the moderators would, would stand out and be like, everybody raise your hand if you want to nationalize healthcare. Oh yeah. <laughs> and everybody like, yes, I do. Like they were um I actually think that the they all got pushed a little bit too far um by the by the sense that the public was what the public was craving Bernie's 
policy positions rather than they were that they were reacting to some sense in which he wasn't bought and paid for or not an elitist and um so, you know, like a, somebody was going to shake up the system right um and not not that i don't agree with bernie's policies right of course i do but um i i don't think that the public necessarily shares enthusiasm for for all of his policies as much as at the time they really liked him right and he was such a stark contrast um, to Hillary Clinton, who had been, you know, in our politics since the early '90s, and uh, you know, I, I think some people just didn't didn't care for her, right? Um, and so, all kinds of reasons for that we don't have to get into, right? <laughs> but like, um, but I I do think that the party, at least the people who wanted to be president, um, overcorrected for the sense that the public was was ready for like Scandinavian style social democracy, and now after 2020, when we when we nominated the you know um, Biden. Even though we did that, people are blaming things that happened in the summer of 2020 for everything that has gone wrong with Democrats since then, right? So we're like, oh, some activists were chanting defund the police. So what we obviously have to do is double funding for cops. Um, some people were were protesting racial injustice. So obviously what we need to do is change our coalition so that black people aren't in it anymore, right? Like, wouldn't that solve the problem? Um and so there's, there's, I, I think there's a there's massive overcorrection happening right now. Um, like the idea that the progressive left is the problem with the Democratic Party. Um, we have to move away from it. Like you, you have to be careful. There's always a balance. Um, progressive Democrats are disproportionately um, vocal in, in party politics, um, but they do represent a distinct, a very small, relatively small minority of the American people. Right? That's in, and I'm, that's me. That's you. Um, God love us all, but we're probably only 13, 14% of the population, right? If you if you just take it literally. And so that means we have to sell our policy. You know, we have to, we have to message our policies, we have to convince people, we have to do, we have to do uh, real work to get people on board with the things that we want to do. And what's really concerning me right now is the conventional wisdom that is developing and hardening um, is that we have to continue to run away um, from from all of these progressive ideas reshuffle our coalition so we can we can win elections in nebraska or something which is never going to happen um and that the, the key to victory in 2022 and 2024 is to you know um fund the police and build more prison you know like basically we are taking everything that happened in 2020 and be like that was a mistake so <laughs> let's appeal to the to, to worse people now maybe we can win that way um so the column that, that we're talking about was inspired by We've talked about David Shore on this program before, right? The, the Democratic strategist pollster um, and his theory of popularism, like don't talk about anything that's not popular, only talk about things that are popular and, uh, you know, presto change, you'll, you'll win all your elections. And he had posted this like apocalyptic tweet about how we could, Democrats could win a, a majority of the vote, two-party vote in the next two elections and still be looking up at a Republican trifecta with a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate <laughs> after 2024. Um, and it is possible for sure, uh, no pun intended, but I think that, um, David Shore said, what we have to do is to, um, is to make fundamental structural changes to our coalition as if that's something that we can do willingly, even if we wanted to, you know, between elections. Um, and, and what makes me particularly angry about all of this discourse, you know, we got to move to the center. We got to, got to try to be more moderate. We got to appeal to people that love police and blah, blah, blah. Um, is that that's exactly what we have been doing for the last like 18 months. Um, this presidency is like, it's like the dream presidency of the moderates. 
um, the, the sort of like Abigail Spamberger wing of the party that's like, ooh, we got all these people in swing districts, man, be careful. They don't want to throw us under the bus. Those people, man, they have gotten everything that they have wanted, right? Like the Matthew Iglesias theory of American politics of like, pass one big bipartisan infrastructure bill, people like that, and then just go home. <laughs> like, just don't do anything else, right? Don't ruffle anybody's feathers, and then we'll do great. Um, that is not working out <laughs> for us at all. Um, the, the polling stemming from this incredibly moderate presidency and this incredibly, I don't even want to call it, I don't want to call it complete inertia moderation. It's just, um, it's ineptitude and, and, and cowardice, but it codes as, as moderation. So fine, we'll call it moderation. Um, this past, you know, passed the COVID relief bill, the infrastructure package, and then that's it. We're done. We will not deliver literally any of the promises that we made to the people that voted for us. Um, and the outcome of that is going to be a catastrophe. Now, Passing, pay, passing paid family leave or student debt relief, it doesn't automatically mean we're going to win, right? But you, you might as well do Like, if you're going to lose anyway, <laughs> you, you might as well do something with the power that you have, you know? Um, and, and so uh, my, my line is like, why don't we try doing some of the things that we promised people that we would do? See if that that turns the poll numbers around. You know, I, I just don't think um, we are, what, what is really being asked of Democrats right now is to tack to the center away from the 2020 primaries. Right. And that already happened. That happened when Joe Biden won the nomination. That happened when he became president. Um, that happened when Cory Booker, you know, got up and said, you know, we don't want to defund the police. We want to fund the police. You know, the whole party has decided like defund is, is, a, is a was a bad idea. We've never talked about it. Like that work is done. You know, like nobody, you know, nobody really prominent in the, in the Democratic Party is talking about defunding the police. Um, what they're actually doing is they're funding, they're giving the police more funding, they're giving the military more funding. Um, and hey, that is actually not working either because um, it's not like when Joe Biden proposes to increase the funding for police, it's not like everybody at Fox News goes like, oh, okay, well, he listened. So we're going to <laughs> no, running a 24-7 propaganda campaign to, to de- demonize everybody in the Democratic Party and, and you know convince them they're a bunch of soft on crime pedophiles who are grooming children to be, to be trans. Um, it's like, David Short, you have got to break the linkage in your brain between the idea like that, like, that the, we get to define ourselves, you know, that the, that the right is not going to define Democrats in whatever terms that they choose to their own voters, right? We have to choose how we want to define ourselves to our own coalition, right? And what we are doing, again, this has happened so many times in my lifetime, is that we are deliberately defining ourselves in a way to alienate the people that vote for us. You know, um, and I just don't see how that's going to be a winner. We have a real problem with young voters right now. Um, and uh, just, you know, I, mean, I wrote a book called The Kids Are All Left, right? But if you go to the last chapter, <laughs> you always got to do this. Got to issue a series of caveats. And I was like, the one thing Democrats could do to kick away this voting block is that they got into power and they didn't do anything. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Uh, I, I, um, I just want to make uh, uh, what I consider a correction to your statement. That was a great riff. I agreed with uh, pretty much everything you said, but I have to make a correction. Uh, you said that Democrats have been uh, abandoning, or I'm putting, I'm uh, paraphrasing what you said. Their principles are moving right, and over the last 18 months, I would say it's been going on for the last 50 years. I think that pretty much every uh, Democratic idea, when it comes to uh, strategy, uh, you could credit it to Obama. You can, which really the, the brains behind it was Bill Clinton and his uh, top aides. And uh, they followed 
the people who ran the Biden campaign followed from their playbook. It goes back to the 1972 uh, Richard Nixon uh, win over George McGovern, one of the biggest electoral landslides, if not the biggest in the history of the country. Uh, and Bill Clinton emerged. He was down in Texas as a young man working for the McGovern campaign, uh, and he emerged defiant. I encourage everybody to read uh, what is this, David Moranis's book about young Bill Clinton. He emerged from that defiant. I will never be uh, classified by the Republicans as a lefty again. I will do everything I can to position myself uh, in the middle, distinguishing myself from the left flank of the Democratic Party. And the message I will give to the left flank of the Democratic Party is you have no choice but to vote for me. Because as bad as I am to you, I am better than the Republican uh, alternative. That is the central philosophical tenet of Clintonianism, and that has dominated the Democratic Party. David, for your entire lifetime, young man, you weren't even born in 1972, and this is still the prevailing view. And every time a Democrat loses, they always go, he was too far left. I'd love, in 1984, Walter Mondale, when he got the nomination, he was viewed as a centrist. We're going back to our centrist roots, ladies and gentlemen. He's not like a Ted Kennedy. He's a centrist. He got clobbered. What's the analysis? Oh, he was too far left. David, the Democrats, like, they want to lose. I think they want to lose. Because they don't listen to you. Sometimes I think they do, yeah. I mean, part of the problem is that the Democratic leadership class is so old that they were, like, middle-aged in 1972. You know, I think that Joe Biden was probably already like 50. Like Nancy Pelosi was was 50 in 1972. It's like the defining moment of their middle age. Um, and uh, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but they were really, really old. And but this is this is the this is the lesson that they were steeped in, right? Like they lived through McGovern. They lived through the 80s when Democrats get got clobbered over and over again by Reagan. And um, and they decided, you know, we can't do any of this stuff anymore because it's unpopular. Um and they, they have, I don't know if they just haven't read a poll in 30 years or what, but it, <laughs> there are a lot of progressive policy ideas that are quite popular um, if, you, if you phrase them in certain ways to, to voters. Um, you can run on these things and win. What, what you can't do um, is, is just fundamentally obsess about what centrists and center-right people are going to think of you. You know, how, how are they defining you? How, how can we appeal to that group of people? That seems to be like the, the never-ending monomania of the Democrats. And the biggest problem with it is that it is defensive in nature, right? Um, it's like, how can, it's like, this is what every, this is all the Democratic consultants are thinking right now. Like, how can we avoid being associated with defund? How can we avoid being, being associated with critical, critical race theory? How can we be, avoid being uh, associated with like, I don't know, whatever moral panic about trans athletes or whatever, you know? How can we, we got to get, a, like, we got to get as far away from that as possible, you know? Uh, those are the vampires. Don't let them in. You know, keep your garlic on you, and uh, we just shut, our, shut ourselves in here in the house, and 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 don't talk to any trans people in public. Uh, we'll win, right? And it's like, no, man. Like you're uh, you're on your heels right now. You know, you were on your heels. You were on the defensive. You got to go on the warpath, right? Like they are busy defining us every day on Fox News, on Breitbart, the whole propaganda next network, OAN, Ted Cruz, Madison Cawthorn. Um, MTG, all these lunatics, right? Like they spend their whole days figuring out ways to make people think the Democrats are are, are child grooming pedophiles. Uh, who, you know, and this stuff has gone mainstream, right? 
it's it's disgusting. Um, and then we go out and our leaders go out on TV and they're like, I really miss the party of Lincoln. You know, like, remember Reagan? He was great. Uh, I really just want a nice, stable, like calm Republican party to work with and just get rid of this Trump guy and that'll, we'll just get back to business. You know, like I have a lot to talk about with Ms. McConnell and they, they have to get away from that. You know, um, they have to make a concerted effort to define the Republican party according to its worst elements, um, according to just what, what the terrible things that the mainstream of the Republican party is doing, um, the sort of the, the authoritarian turn in the Republican party, um, and tell people what they want to do. Right. Like what's happening in Texas right now? Do you want that to go national? Do you want to be um, ratted out by your neighbor uh, for having an abortion and have that neighbor get 10 grand? Because that's coming to a theater near you if they get a trifecta in 2024. So um, this is I mean, I I don't know how many like mountains I can scream this into, um, but Democrats really have to be more aggressive in defining their their opponents down um, and engaging in the kind of, you know, bloody and sometimes alienating political rhetoric. But it works for them. It does. It just does. And the, the great thing is like well, the idea that we're, we're all grooming children to be whatever, it happens to be like a, like a deranged lie. Like the, the idea that Republicans want to dismantle democracy and, and um, turn women into second class citizens, it's their platform. You know what I mean? That's what they want to do. So we don't even have to lie about it. We just have to tell people the truth and be willing um, to, to look at a suburban swing voter in, in, uh, in Michigan and say like, dude, the Republican Party is bad. You're not bad. You're, you know, you're fine, right? Like we, we want your vote. We want to help you. Um, but these people over here, do you know what they actually want to do? It's reactionary. It's radical. It's sick because it is. Yeah. Uh, and that brings me, uh, that was a great riff, by the way, that brings me to the Katanji Brown Jackson hearings. We've talked a lot about this in the show. Uh, you missed the main conversation because that was, I think the week you were sick. Uh, I urge everybody who's listening to this hasn't already Check out the Stacey Davis Gates interview uh, where she went at length uh, how about painful this was to her, what went down with the Katanji Brown-Jackson hearing. But here's, as I see it, what the de- Republican strategy was in that hearing. They knew the Democrats were going to use that hearing to de- tell a, a feel-good story uh, about a black woman uh, who rose to the highest court in the land through hard work and diligence, uh, coming from a very middle-class, law-abiding family. I think her father's a police officer. So it's just like the uh, all-American story. And they wanted to turn that upside down and turn her into this dangerous, ominous figure who represents pedophilia. And it what they did was unrelenting. I think it was... Uh, absolutely unique for Supreme Court hearings because there was no ideological basis for it. There was no lawsuit against her like there was, or there was no accusations of harassment against her like there was with Brett Kavanaugh and Clarence Thomas. Uh, And it was for the whole purpose of what you just said, this is my humble opinion, of uh, just trying to push the Democrats, uh, tar them with this notion that there's somehow this twisted party. And the result, David, I've been talking about this nonstop. Last week's New York Times headline, after grilling judge, GOP sees opening to win black voters. That's a headline and a story in the New York Times. They absolutely sickening display that alienated pretty much every black person in America except for like Herschel Walker and Larry Elders, and they're saying, they think this is the ticket to win over black voters. It just goes to show the depth of Republican propaganda that they will put out there. And 
I don't know what to say about the New York Times, but their culpability in allowing themselves to be used to promote an utterly absurd piece of Republican propaganda, to put that out there like this was a way they're going to get black voters. What do you think? Black voters are idiots. And but <laughs> that's just like the attitude that's so pr- prevalent, uh, both with mainstream coverage of the Republicans and the Republican tactics. They just push everything to the right. And pretty soon. It's like what would be an unacceptable discourse becomes the center. It's a scary moment. What's your thoughts? It is. Um, so one thing, if you want to just have a good laugh, um, and it's speaking of Twitter, there are a few good things about Twitter. One of them is an account called New York Times Pitchbot, um, which which makes up ridiculous New York Times pitches or headlines that are that are ridiculous, but they are they are fundamentally adjacent to some of the dumber headlines and storylines that you see in the, in the New York Times, New York Times pitch bot. So it's like, it's like if the New York Times had a headline, like uh, GOP sees opening with gay voters after passing, don't say gay bill, right? Like um, just, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It's, That's it's exactly what the headline was, by the way, for only for black voters. Yes. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, but uh, you know, in a, in a more just kind of backing up here a little bit and, and returning to, the idea of going on the offensive, right? Like it, it is, it is telling to me that all of our conversations about those hearings are about the terrible things that Republicans said about about uh, about J- uh, Brown Jackson. Okay, um, with the, with the coverage was intense. You know, Josh Hawley talking about you know pedophilia. This other senator talking about pedophilia. This other senator talking about pedophilia. And it's like, okay, what were we trying to do during that hearing, right? And so Democratic strategy is like. Um, let's, let's convince everyone that, that she's a good person, as you talked about, you know, middle-class background, dad's a cop. Um, you know, I don't want to be dismissive or flip, but like no one gives a shit. Sorry. Um, and, uh, it, it's like the story that we should be telling during our confirmation hearings and they just can't convince that like, they just can't do it is like, what is the judicial philosophy of the left? You know, like what does KBJ want to do? Like, what would she do if she was in the majority? What kind of rulings would she make? What kind of changes to, to the American political and, and economic system would a liberal court make, right? Because this person, I, she's great. I mean, she's a great pick. I'm a huge fan. Um, I love that she was a former public defender. I love that she's not like a, a secret um, enthusiast of, of the carceral state, like some of the other names that are being floated. Um, just 100% stuck the landing with this pick. I like, I really like it, okay? All of that said, <laughs> She's going to spend the next 10 years of her life getting outvoted six to three on important things. Right. Um, and, and it's, we're not, I'm not even talking about court packing right now. Like all I'm saying is like, um, you need to tell your own coalition, what is the meaning of judicial power? Because most people on the left, and I say it because I, I teach intro to American government and we do, we do a, a, a chapter on the Supreme court every semester, every you know, once, once, a twice a year for the last seven years of my life, I've been doing this. Um, and I, you know, I'm like, what about structural reforms in the Supreme Court? And my students who are all mostly like 99% like, like left of left of left to a person are like, Supreme Court's great. You know, Brown, you know, Brown v. Board of Ed, you know, uh, Obergefell, you know, they, they point to like the five good things that the Supreme Court has done in its entire history <laughs> to, <laughs> yeah. to justify, yeah. right, to justify that they're, they're like continued worship of this institution. Um, and it's, you know, I can't brainwash them. There's only so much I can do, right? <laughs> but like, um, I push back and I'm like, what about the 150 years before that? You know? Um, and so it's like, okay, we're, we're afraid to say the words living constitution, right? Like they're like the, our senators, 
our nominees, everyone is afraid to get out there and just say the plain truth of the matter, um, which is that the, the Constitution is a living document that can be updated and interpreted according to the needs of a modern society. It's actually a really simple philosophy. Um, and like, what are all the cool things that we could do? Not um, just defend Roe, right? Not just defend Obergefell, which of course we should do that. But like, if you're in the majority, you're not going to be defending Roe, right? Like Roe would be the law of the land. Um, and so what do you want to do with your power? You know, uh, what if the Supreme Court decided um, that equal funding of public education was a constitutional right? You know, what about that? Uh, and, and you go on the list, like what, what a, we're, it's just so hard. It seems like we're incapable of imagining a positive agenda for a liberal Supreme Court. And maybe part of that is that the liberal Supreme Court seems further the way than ever. I don't know. Well, I'll tell you the, the problem with that. Uh, not problem that I would have with it, but just the problem as it would be playing on the uh, in the public discourse. The problem with that is, once again, and I'm quoting you to you, uh, Democrats are playing on a Republican playing field. Uh, and so the Republican attack, for, for as long as I can remember, when it comes to Supreme Court justices that Democrats propose, uh, is that their activist justice, uh, justices are using uh, their rulings to enact laws. And so they're effectively subverting uh, democracy. And what, and what we should have are uh, constitutional, strict constitutional lawyers, uh, judges, who will not change in any way or alter uh, the Supreme Court and do not have an ideological bent when they go on the Supreme Court, which is a bizarre thing for Republicans to say, because absolutely everybody they've put up in the last 20 years have been picked by the, the hard right. Kavanaugh was a freaking political operative for Ken Starr trying to take down Clinton. So yes, they're completely uh, hypocritical with, with this, but Democrats play in that field. And so the like, Democrats, like if you listen to putting aside the stories about her family, the feel-good stories about her family, uh, and the assault uh, that she suffered from the uh, Republicans on any pretty much issue. She was like, "Well, I, you know, I haven't made up my mind. I, I have no opinion." I mean, it was just a standard refrain that all judicial nominees do. I, you know, the worst was Clarence Thomas saying he hadn't made up his mind about abortion. I'm like. Dude, the only reason you're there is because you pledged that you'll do everything you can to outlaw it, and you've lived up to that pledge. So, David, do you follow my point? My point is if you got up there, just imagine a judge. You know, I believe in the Constitution is a living document and that we could change it to update our needs because let's think of this, ladies and gentlemen. We know, we know slavery has been abolished in this country. The people who wrote the Constitution were slave owners who put pr preservation of slavery into the document. If they said something like that, the republic oh my god you're an ideologue you're trying to change your legislator on the bench you should run for state rep da, 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 da. and the democrats would retreat run away and scurry away like the little mice that they are uh that is the flaw defend uh defend your position anyway in the face of my uh, assertions well, I mean, I, I, again, I mean, I think this is a form of going on the offensive, right? Like um, when, so if, if somebody, somebody, Ted Cruz gets up there and is like, the strict constructionism, you know, the founders knew what they wanted, you know, have, have your nominee look them in the eye and be like, do you think, uh, I'm just curious, do you think that like Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson wanted 40,000 people a year to, to be killed in gun violence and, and for like complete maniacs to be able to take an, a, like a full arsenal that could murder a British res, uh, regiment 
um, onto the subway and, and, and blow everybody up. Is that, is that, do you think that's what they had in mind? Is that, was that the intent of the framers? Um, just to, just to point out the absurdity of this, uh, almost theocratic worship of, of the, of the words of the founders. Um, often they don't even understand, like, you know, these, these strict constructionists, um, often have to hire clerks, um, who are, uh, functionally historians, um, just going back and be like, so what does quartering mean? You know, in the, in the, uh, in this amendment, like, what does that actually mean? What did, what did they mean by it at the time? Um, and it's like, who cares what, what they thought in 1787? I, I, it's just like, there's nothing in the world that I could, I could care less about, um, than, than what Thomas Jefferson meant by his words. You know, it is 2022, man. Like we, we just, we don't have time for this stuff anymore. Um, and so I, I just think that the, the the actual policy that comes out of strict constructionism is 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 politically toxic if you could package it package it right. It's like you take the, all of the Second Amendment rulings in the last twenty years. You take Citizens United. Um, you take Bush v. Gore. Um, you take the gutting of, of public employee unions in the case whose name is escaping me right now. Um, you take the uh, the refusal to address gerrymandering. It's like the Supreme Court is like, and they're about to turn overturn Roe. Um, it would be so easy to go on the warpath electorally against this court. Um, it just, you know, you know how to do like nine unelected robed people, you know, substituting their their judgment for the will of the voters and the will of Congress. Um, and maybe we will do that after Roe. But to, but to me, confirmation hearings, in as much as they should exist, and I'm not even really sure that they should anymore, <laughs> because they nobody's minds are being changed here. Um, and if you think of it as fundamentally a piece of political theater. Um, sure. Tell, you know, tell, tell her life story. It's inspirational. She's the first, she's the first black, black woman on the court. You, you don't want to take any of that away from, from her, from, from the people, um, that, that she represents and, and that are looking up to her and being inspired by, uh, what, uh, the example of what can happen here in the United States if we, if we work towards racial justice. So I, I don't want to be on, on, on the record of saying none of that should happen. Right. But like what, what should also have happened is you got to, you, you know, you run the Senate and you run the judiciary committee. Um, what, how do you want to use this free advertising time? Because you got people tuning into these things that are mostly tuned out of politics and they're like, ah, Supreme Court nomination. Oh, that's fun. Uh, and they might only be watching the clips on YouTube, but like, what do you want people to be watching in those clips in addition to her life story? Um, and that to me, and this is a project for the Democrats, another thing I've been screaming out for years, um, is you, you have to tell the people what you want to do with your power. Um, you have to tell people how a liberal Supreme Court will improve their lives. Um, and everybody's afraid of, of saying we're going to outlaw guns. You don't have to say we're going to outlaw guns, right? You say common sense gun control, gun gun reform, um, research into into the public health epidemic of of gun violence. Um, do you, you know? Do you want to be able to leave your house and, and get on a subway without without worrying about um, being mass murdered? Um, vote for us, um, <clears throat> and put our judges on the Supreme Court because we are not um, beholden to to these long dead people, and it's it's part of a project of. Can we stop talking about them as the framers and the founders? Like, just, it was just a bunch of people that wrote a document. You know, it was it yeah. was a tax revolt. I'm sorry. Um, so <laughs> this is a harder sell. <laughs> yeah. No. Oh my goodness. Well, listen. I'm with you. I think that's as good as uh, a point to uh, end the conversation for today, because I think that's some sound advice. I don't see anybody offering it, uh, following it right now, but I do believe that sound advice. Uh, tell the people what you want to do with your power. And I'd add to that and how it will benefit them. And um, I absolutely agree with you uh, when you say that Democrats have run away from that. They're afraid of their own shadows. <laughs> and they're, 
they're just basically saying, don't believe the scary things the Republicans say about me. They're mean. I'm not like that. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and then they listen to, you know, I mean, I, I, we, we're really running out of time, but the whole concept of David Shore, popularism, like what is popular? Do you follow what I'm saying? Like, yeah. <laughs> what are like three things that are popular that will just u- be universally popular that will enable a Democrat to win in Utah? I'm like, or Alabama. I'm like, some, I can't even get yeah, yeah. Sometimes I don't exist in the same world as the David Shores. I mean, I, me, I know yeah, we're out of time. Ahead. One last example, really quick. Popularism, oh. right? Do you know what was really popular in, um, let's say, uh, October 2016? Um, repealing the Affordable Care Act. You know what was really unpopular in February of 2017? Repealing the Affordable Care Act. Okay, public opinion is not static. Like this idea that we can just chase it around like puppies and get everything that we want is is ridiculous. He should know that too. He, he should know that. And by the way, that uh, I mean, to introduce that at the end of the show is like a whole show we could do, the Affordable Hair Care Act. The way the Republicans demonized that to the point where they had painted themselves in a corner and they realized that there would be hell to pay if they got rid of it, hell to pay at the polls, hell to pay just in terms of people's lives, hell to pay with hospitals and doctors and the whole industry. And they're Donald Trump bragging that he was close to getting rid of it. And it was just John McCain's downward thumb that prevented. David, I don't think anybody has really done the deep dive on that. You, you, you get what I'm saying? How the Republicans turn that into a demon it just proves every point you've ever made, like something that everybody wants and needs, they're ostensibly against. If that's not madness, I don't know what it is. We could do a whole show about this, you know? So Yes, that's a whole show, maybe next time. All right, David Ferris, thank you very much. It's great to see you back uh, healthy and uh, speaking uh, forcefully. And uh, so stay away from whatever germs brought you down, all right? <laughs> Unfortunately, I have a three-year-old. I can't, I can't. I'll do my best. <laughs> yeah, that's that is that. All right, David Ferris, thank you very much. That's David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. 